Hello and welcome to the Thriving on Purpose broadcast. Tonight we continue our series about the Kingdom of God. And the title of tonight's broadcast is Understanding the Kingdom of God, Part 6a. God is good all the time. But before we get started and dig in the goodness of God and, and begin this study on the goodness of God, just a quick introduction uh, if you haven't done so already, make sure you head on to thrivingonpurpose.com and sign up to our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with all of our news and updates. This will also enable you to follow this ministry despite all the censorship that's going on, as you've probably noticed. Now, while you're at it, make sure you check out our unique Kingdom Patriot and Remnant Arising jewelry and apparel and merchandise, of which I am wearing tonight, as you can see, this beautiful Kingdom Patriot hat and uh, you can check that out and if you feel led to partner with this teaching ministry or to sow a seed you can do so on our website by going at thrivingonpurpose.com and clicking the give button and now i have taken far too much of your time let us dig into this wonderful teaching which is uh central it's so important uh this uh chapter that I'm going to teach to you guys right now that I wrote in the book, by the way, if you didn't get your copy of Kingdom Fundamentals, I urge you to get your own copy and read this amazing life-changing book. Now, if you did get your copy and you're following this series and you have the, your copy of the book in hand, and if the book has indeed blessed you and has had an impact on your life, I urge you to head on to Amazon.com and leave a positive review for the book. It's one of the best ways that you can help this ministry. So it's kind of funny that, <clears throat> not funny, I shouldn't say funny, but uh, it's kind of special that I'm going to be addressing the love of God, the goodness of God, uh, at a time where a lot of people are looking for it. A lot of people are not quite feeling it. A lot of people are, are looking at the state of the world right now and they're like, where is God in this mess? We, we, we're we really looking for him. We're really hoping he's going to show up and we look at the state of the world and it seems that he has abandoned human beings to the basically <laughs> what, what's going on. I mean, there's so much going on right now. So I think there's no better time than to do teachings or to teach on God's goodness and helping people to reconnect with the Father's unfailing love, which is the subtitle in the book, Reconnecting with the Father's Unfailing Love. I want to open up with a quote by Dwight L. Moody right from the get-go. I want to start with this because I thought it was such an amazing quote that I I jotted it down in the book. If you can really make a man believe you love him, you have won him. And if I could only make people really believe that God loves them, what a rush would we see for the kingdom of God? Dwight L. Moody. So if we can convince people, if we can really convince them that God does indeed love them, what a rush we would see for the kingdom of God. So understanding that God loves us is central, central to understanding the kingdom of God. And that's why I put this chapter pretty much around the middle of the book. The book has 11 chapters. This is chapter five. I know it's the, the teaching is part 6a, but... That's because I included the introduction. So it's chapter five in the book. So I, I put the chapter close to the middle of the book. And it's because God's love and his goodness are central to his kingdom. God's goodness is the fundamental of fundamentals if you're going to understand the kingdom of God. Now, in the last teaching, uh, the last chapter that I covered, uh, we learned that the the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the real good news, was that God brought the power and influence of the kingdom of heaven back to earth in men's hearts and through the power of the Holy Ghost. And we also learned that through this new covenant, 
We have access through Jesus Christ to God's favor, God's blessings, and yes, his riches here and now in this life. Now, we learned that painful toil and sweat and worry to obtain sustenance in, is the way of the pagans or unbelievers, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 33, when he said, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Indeed, the coming of Jesus changed everything for those who believe. Now, you might be thinking, if that's true, how come there is so much suffering on the earth? And most of all, how come this hasn't been true in my life? In this chapter, in this teaching, in this broadcast, we will tackle why few believers actually tap into the blessed and abundant life that Jesus promised. And as you will see from this teaching, it is not God's fault. And take a little sip of water. After that, I'd like to talk about the renewing of the mind. So the renewing of the mind. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul admonishes us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. As believers, we are not to be conformed to what Paul calls the pattern of this world. We are not to think like the world thinks or see like the world sees, understand like the world understands, live like the world lives, and most of all, believe what the world believes. The world or unbelievers believe through their senses, what they can see, touch, hear, or smell, etc., as believers, we are called to a renewing of our minds, which leads us into transformation. In the gospel, there is an instance where, where Jesus gets somewhat impatient with our conformity with the world. And this interesting story is found in Matthew 17, verses 14 through 18. So in this instance, we read this. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And then Jesus said, you poor man. Lead me to your son and I will heal him. No, that is not what he said. <laughs> Here's what he said. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy. And he was healed at that moment. Jesus said in that passage, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Now, these words sound harsh, but what did Jesus mean exactly? Well, if we read the end of the story, we realize that Jesus equated perverse or perverse thinking with unbelief. When his disciples asked why they couldn't cast out the demon, he answered them this in Matthew 17, 20. He said, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible 
for you. Now let's look, let's consider this term, perverse thinking, perverse thinking. Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, defines perverse this way. The first definition says, turned away from what is right or good, corrupt. And the second says, improper or incorrect. And they go on saying also, obstinate in opposing what is right, reasonable or accepted. And I really like how it finishes here. Wrong-headed. Wrong-headed. So perverse in the context of the dictionary de definition and in the context of the, that passage we read in Matthew means wrong-headed, which is to say having or showing bad judgment, bad judgment. It's misguided, misguided. So it is clear that the disciples could not cast out the demon because they had too little faith and they also had wrong thinking. And here's the thing. Wrong thinking and little faith are inextricably linked. They are linked. When we fail to move mountains in our own lives, it's not because God has failed us. It is because we have failed God through our own lack of faith. We cannot have what heaven has unless we think like heaven thinks. Now, let's repeat that. This is important. We cannot have what heaven has unless we think like heaven thinks. So we need to repent from our perverse thinking and replace it with right thinking or right believing. Only right thinking can bring right believing. And only right believing can make us say to mountains, move out of the way. Only the right faith or a correct mindset can, us, can help us to do that. And as we will explore, we'll see that that is often not the case with the way we live our lives, the way we believe, the way we understand uh, our God, the way we understand the kingdom of God. Let's consider, for example, acts of God, acts of God. The first and, and most important corrective measure believers need to bring to their understanding in order to have mustard seed faith is that God is good all the time. God is good all the time. Now, we say it all the time, but do we really believe it? Consider this. In our ins insurance policies, in my insurance policy and in your insurance policies, we have what is termed to be acts of God. These are put there in, in these insurance policies. They, they mean basically natural disasters like earthquakes, volcanoes, tornadoes, and hurricanes, which can take lives and the possessions of many people. That is in our everyday business vernacular, acts of God. So we basically equate, check this out, we basically equate massive loss of life and destruction of property with God's will, right? If these are acts of God, then they must stem from the will of God. And then we kid ourselves in trying to reconcile these things with our supposed belief that God is good. You see where I'm going with this. <laughs> so according to this train of thought, God brings death and destruction but we say that he is good. Really? Is he really? <laughs> Do we really believe that? Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong here. I am not, in actuality, agreeing with insurance companies that God causes these natural catastrophes. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we ascribe these, destruct these destructive natural events to him alone. And yet, in the Bible, these were caused by God in certain unique instances only. For example, the flood or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
the plagues of Egypt and the tribulation in Revelation are unique instances where God brings judgment on people who oppose him on a grand scale. But can we say that every storm, tornado, and earthquake are sent by him? Of course not. Of course not. We can't say that. For example, in the book of Job, Satan himself was able to control weather patterns to bring about destruction. That's in Job chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. So we understand that there's other forces at work, right? So there's even today, I mean, for, for those of us who are familiar with us, a system called HARP, H-A-A-R-P, we know that governments are able, they have technology now, to control weather pattern and to bring them in certain places and cause destruction. And I'm not going to get into detail here. By the way, that's not in the book. That's just me ad-libbing right now. So I believe that when God created wind currents, that's my personal belief here. I'm sharing it with you. I believe that when God created wind currents or weather patterns and seasons, he gave them something similar to human free will to go to and fro and accomplish their purpose on the earth within certain limitations. So you can find some of that in Job chapter 38. Nature was meant to be, to a large extent, self-regulating. I also believe that at certain times, God may take hold of these wind currents and weather patterns to bring them the way he wants and to fulfill his purposes. He can also assign this task to mighty angels. But I believe this is the exception and not necessarily the rule. Now, this is just my opinion, and you may disagree theologically, and I mean, there's different views on that, and that's perfectly okay. But that's just my opinion. Now I want to talk about the testimony of an avowed agnostic. The testimony of an avowed agnostic. I, I think that's the way we pronounce it, avowed, right? Someone who admits to be an agnostic, basically. So I'm going to talk about a theologian, a very renowned theologian called Bart D. Ehrman. Bart D. Ehrman. And uh, some of you might know him. Some of you might not know him. So I'm just going to talk to you guys a little bit about this man. He is one of the most distinguished New Testament scholars in the world. I actually own some of his books. I have two of his books in my personal library. His writings and publicized debates have helped me to better understand the origins and the makings of our beloved New Testament. His works, for those who've read, who've read them, would, you would probably concur, his works are scholarly, they are insightful, and they are very well researched. However, however, and this, this may come as a shock to some of you, Mr. Ehrman is a self-avowed self agnostic. So although he is a gifted Bible scholar, he is not a believer. Now, it's interesting because when you listen to his testimony, he says he used to be as a youth when he was younger, in his younger years. But along the way, his convictions changed. And the most interesting thing about his lack of faith in the God of the Bible is the reason behind it. And, and I'm sharing this in the book because I think it's so important to understand because he's not alone. And I, by no way am I sharing this to condemn the man, not at all. So here's why one of the most respected Bible scholars of this generation is not a believer. In his own words and from his own blog, a blog that he titled Leaving the Faith, here's what he wrote. He wrote, as a Christian, from the time I was able to think through my teenage and early 20s fundamentalist period up to my more mature adult liberal phase, I had believed in some form of the traditional biblical God. This was a God who was not some kind of remote designer of the universe who had gotten the ball rolling and then stood aloof from everything he had created. This was a God who was active in the world. He loved people and was intent on showering, showering his love on them. He helped them when they were in need. He answered their prayers. He intervened in this world when it was necessary and important to do so. 
but I had come very much to doubt that any such God existed. And it was the problem of suffering that had created these doubts. And that eventually led me to doubt it so much that I simply no longer believed it. If God helps his people, why doesn't he help his people? If he answers prayer, why doesn't he answer prayer? If he intervenes, why doesn't he intervene? It was innocent suffering that made me think there is no such God. People who are faithful to God, who devote their lives to him, who pray to him, suffer no less than those who are indifferent to God or even scornful towards his existence. So this is the excerpt from his, uh, his blog. So Mr. Ehrman said this in his blog, that he had lost the faith in the, his faith in the God of the Bible because there is too much suffering in the world and he believes it is because of God, or rather, because of God's lack of involvement. In fact, I had the opportunity to hear a few debates featuring Mr. Ehrman, and he was very open about this. So it's, it's for those who know him, that this is not a surprise. This is not a shock. This is something he's very, very open about. So Bart Ehrman stopped believing in the God of the Bible because he thought that an all-powerful and sovereign God who allowed this much suffering in the world didn't make any sense. Now, this is a very common complaint among unbelievers. You, yourself, you might have probably heard many friends or family members and acquaintances express the same grievances when you shared your faith with them. I know I have heard that many times, many, many times when I shared my faith. Now, we saw in earlier teachings, earlier chapters of Kingdom Fundamentals, why that is. It is because God gave dominion to man. And we also saw that it is because he cannot violate his own word. Okay. However, most are unaware of this fact, even among believers. So, Mr. Ehrman is not alone. Far from it. This is a perverse belief that is very common. It's a, it's a misconception. So the perverse belief that God causes or allows all of the suffering in the world has made hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of atheists and agnostics worldwide and throughout history. But that's not all. The worst part is that many professing Christians believe this as well. This is nothing less than perverse thinking. It is the result of perverse thinking. And it is a misunderstanding of the God of the Bible. Now, in previous teachings, we saw how God relinquished dominion of the earth realm to man, to Adam in Genesis. We've also seen how it is man who made a mess of things. Now, most of all, we have seen how God, because of his word to us in Genesis, and in order to intervene in the earth realm, requires man to be in covenant and in relationship with him. This is very important. So, therefore, the responsibility for pain Suffering and death on the earth is not the will of God or the results of God's actions. He says it himself in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. And in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, he says, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Now I want to look at the reasons for pain, suffering, and death. The reasons for pain, suffering, and death. Now, there are three main reasons for pain, death, and suffering in the world, and they are this. 
the fallen world we live in, it's a fallen world, our wayward flesh, and the devil. Okay? So let's look at these three in, in detail. So the world. Okay. So we live in a fallen world. This world has not yet been restored to its original glory. We still have to contend with sickness, with disease, with brokenness, with natural disasters and death. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22 says this, For the creation waits, the whole creation waits, in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And then secondly, there's the flesh. Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when they were failing to pray, in Matthew 26, 40, 41, he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The weakness of our flesh is not just found in our inability to do good consistently, like Paul decried in Romans 7. It is also found in our incomplete knowledge and failure to do things perfe perfectly. It is found in man's inadequate exercise of control, uh, of control and dominion. Our sinful and imperfect nature and intelligence have led to faulty buildings and constructions, which engender death. Manufacturing of weapons and wars, which engender death. Evil in our hearts, which engender death. We also see, we also see this in the lusts, in our lusts, in, a, in our love of money, which engenders death doing evil things and making others suffer. So the flesh is a huge factor in the pain and suffering we see in the world, our sinful natures. And thirdly, there's the devil. Obviously, we cannot forget the deadly enemy of our souls. Satan loves to steal, kill, and destroy. In fact, it is his mission statement. It's what he's best known for. In John 8:44, Jesus reminds us that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. I haven't taken the time to talk about it, but Satan also rules a kingdom in this fallen world, the kingdom of darkness. His kingdom, like God's kingdom, has citizens, it has principalities, powers, departments, ambassadors, and all of the other kingdom constituents and organizational hierarchies we explored in the first chapter we looked at when we went through all that the kingdom of God uh, contains, all the, all the, 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 the government of the, the complexity of God's government. Now, the reason is simple. Guess what? Satan learned kingdom hierarchical organization back when he was in heaven as Lucifer. He knows just how efficient it can be, and he learned from the best. He learned from God, because he was very intimately acquainted with this hierarchy and how it should operate. So the God of this age, the prince of this world, is highly organized. He never rests, because he knows that his time is short, according to Revelation 12, 2. Especially now, he knows his time is short. And guess what? The more we advance in, 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 in time, the more he knows his time is short. His servants, angels, demons, humans, and otherwise are highly dedicated to his cause. Their goal is the total control of the earth realm and the annihilation of the servants of the king of kings. Make no mistake about it. If the devil can get any legal right to make you ill or to kill you, he will. Period. This is why you need to be sober. 
to be vigilant because guess what? Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. So now let's get back to the issue at hand. We were talking about perverse thinking. So before we point accusing fingers as believers, as Christians, before we point accusing fingers towards people like Bart Ehrman or even Richard Dawkins, the world-famous atheist and the author of The God Delusion, for defective or perverse thinking, because that's our tendency as Christians, we point fingers, right? Let's look at ourselves. Let's consider our own thinking towards God as believers. So we as believers exercise perverse thinking in many instances. We just don't realize it. We disguise it as being spiritual or deep or theological or smart or even humble or holy. Well, guess what? Demons are spiritual too. So perhaps we should take heed where we're going with this. Remember, judgment always begins with the house of God, according to Scripture. This is because we are supposed to be the light of the world. We are the ones who should shed light for the peoples and the nations of the world who are walking in darkness. The light of the kingdom, we should be shining the light of the kingdom and the light of its king for these people who are walking in darkness. But in order to be lights, we must first be enlightened ourselves. And oftentimes we're not because we entertain perverse thinking. Our understanding, how we receive his light, must be perfected. As Jesus said this, he said this in Matthew chapter 6, Verses 22 and 23 said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So we really, really need to immerse ourselves in his light, in the light of the kingdom of God. We really need to shed light in our own understanding. <clears throat> when we adhere to perverse thinking, we often equate life's hardships like cancer, illness, or loss, whether it's loss of a job, a house, or a loved one, or poverty, we equate these things, these trials and difficulties, with being what? The will of God. I know back in my days when I was a very religious young lad, I used to think that no matter what happened in my life, that was the will of God. And I, and, and I needed to change that. There was a, a, there was a the bad perverse thinking. I, I suffered from a bad case of perverse thinking. So we wrongly interpret life's calamities as either coming directly from the hand of God, perhaps in judgment or as the result of God, quote unquote, allowing it in our lives to discipline or sanctify us. Either way we spin it, we depict him as always having the last and final say in the matter. You're going to see where I'm going with this, okay? For example... To someone who just lost a child, we might say trite things such as, God took your little one because he needed another angel in heaven. Ever? Ever? I hope you've never said that to anyone, but some people say that. And to that, to that, if, if, if ever it's happened to you, and I'm saying that, I'm talking from experience, okay? So I've been told stuff like that. Some could reply, wow, really? Was he that desperate and resourceless that he took my baby because he needed another angel? Now, this example brings me to share a very, very personal story. And for those who've been following Thriving on Purpose for a few years, you've heard uh, this testimony. 
And I'm, I'm going to share it with you guys tonight. So back in 2006, my wife and I were excited to become first-time parents. The 20-week ultrasound scan showed us that we were expecting a little girl. And we already knew that we were going to name her Jennifer. So the day of delivery came. And uh, on that day, things did not go as planned. I'm not going to go into all the details here because that in itself could be made into a book. But unknown to us and to the doctors, Jennifer had pulmonary hypoplasia. And hypoplasia is just a fancy word that means she had underdeveloped lungs. Of course, we didn't know that. So when she was born and they proceeded to cut the umbilical cord, she was unable to breathe by herself because her lungs were not developed enough. And she was breathing basically through the umbilical cord. When that got cut, when she came out and that got cut, her lungs, they just couldn't do it. They were way too small, uh, underdeveloped to, to survive. So she survived mere minutes. And they tried everything. So to say that we were devastated is an understatement. There is nothing worse, I think, in, in this world. There's probably, I mean, there's there's a lot of bad things that can happen in this world. But to us. Losing a child was the worst thing ever. And what followed was a tsunami of emotional and spiritual upheaval, the likes of which I wouldn't wish, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. We felt like our lives had, ju had, had just been shattered. And as is the case often in such trials and difficulties, one question was on our minds and on our hearts. And the question was simple. Why? We, we turned to God and we asked, why? We wondered, why? So the questions on our mind were stuff like, why did God allow this? Why did God not prevent this? Why did God do this? Or did he? Oh, why, why, why? Why was the question on our minds? And when the answers were not forthcoming, we began forging our own answers to make ourselves feel better. So at the time, with the understanding I had, I believed that God, in his sovereignty, had allowed this tragic death to befall our family. And I might just have said that I believed he killed Jennifer because I sometimes wondered about that. Because after all, when you think about it, if I said, if I thought that God allowed it, if I thought that he allowed it, this basically meant that he could have done something about it, but he chose not to in his sovereignty, right? So let's be logical here. So I went through the whole, I went through so many emotions, but I also went through the whole guilt ride roller coaster of what sin in my life or what sin in our lives is God punishing me or us for? Because there was that too. Oh, and, and just for the record, this was also perverse thinking. I was like, God is punishing us. That's why he's doing this. So you, you go through all, you think about all kinds of stuff. And most of it is perverse thinking. And most of it, let's be honest, was whispered by the devil to get us to doubt God. Right? So, so this guilt trip into thinking that it was my sin or maybe the sin of my wife or our sin as a couple, or maybe there was something wrong with us that we did wrong, that we offended God in some way. This really didn't help our faith. It didn't help our healing. And it really didn't help our outlook. And even after a few years... As we were healing through this process, I still maintained that he had allowed it. But but I got to a place where I thought, okay, so he allowed it, but it was for our good. 
It was for us to learn and grow in sanctification from experience. That sounded really spiritual. So I thought that when, when, when people talked about this, I, I sounded very deep and spiritual. God allowed this, but we had lessons to learn. And that's why he made it like he allowed that in our lives. Now, I often referred to Romans 8.28 to justify my reasoning and my belief. And the, you know that verse is a very popular verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, note this. The verse doesn't say, and we know that in all things that God causes or allows, you know, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that in all things that God causes, he works them for the good of those who love him. It says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So rather, this implies that in all things that befall us in this fallen world, God works for the good of his children. So what does this mean? Well, this means that after trials and tribulations come our way, because they will in this broken world, God, in his love, picks up the fragments of our shattered lives to make something good out of them. He works on our behalf to use even the bad stuff that hurts us to make us and our lives better and improved. This is very different than, than saying or thinking or believing that God caused it to cause sanctification. You see where I'm going with this. So these failed attempts at reasoning away the cause of pain and suffering make God seem like, let's be honest, like, a, like you know, Dawkins would say, a self-centered monster. That's how it makes him seem. But then we try to rationalize it by adding insult to, enter, to, to injury. So we say things, oh, so God caused this, or God gave this cancer, or God caused, like, caused the death of the child, or this and that. Then we try to rationalize it. We say stuff like, we do not always understand why God does or allows such things, because his thoughts are above our thoughts, and his ways are above our ways. So basically, we try to take Isaiah 55, 9, and we quote it out of context. We try to rationalize the, the, the bad, awful things that just befell us. So here's what we do. Here's what we do. We often make, and this is a very important quote. You can tweet me on this. Twitter's back, right? With Elon Musk, what he did there. It's like, this very interesting to follow. Let's just say the least. I'm not saying I trust Elon because I don't. That's my personal view. I, I, I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's interesting to see what he's doing with Twitter. So you can tweet this. We often make the grave theological mistake of equating the sovereignty of God and everything happening in the earth realm as being his will. And yet, I'm going to finish with this. This is so important here that you understand at least this part, okay? With everything I said so far, you may, you may be in disagreement with me. That's okay, because there's two parts to this teaching about God is good all the time, okay? Two parts. But this is first part, and I'm finishing this way. So I'm going to re-say the quote here. We often make the grave theological mistake of equating the sovereignty of God and everything happening in the earth realm as being, quote-unquote, his will. And yet, in the Lord's Prayer, the very prayer that Jesus taught us, we say this, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? Well, it means that his will is not being done on the earth as it is in heaven. Hello. 
Do you think Jesus put that in his prayer, in the Lord's prayer, just for show? Because it sounded nice? No. He put that in, in his prayer because he wanted us to call forth the will of God in the earth realm. Because guess what? It's not being done or accomplished in the earth realm. <laughs> so when you pray this prayer, the Lord's prayer, and you say, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're basically, number one, inviting God's will to be done on earth in the in circumstances, but you're also saying to the Lord, here I am, make me a vessel of your will in this realm. I want to be used by you, and I want to be a vessel of your will in this realm to make an impact and to expand the kingdom of God. Now, this is just part of our perverse thinking. It's just a part of it. But there's so many things wrong with the way we perceive God. And until we come to a place, and this was a process for me, and it's going to be a process for you if you're not there yet. But until we come to a place where we perfectly know and believe that God is indeed good all the time and that he loves us, more than we can ever imagine or think, we cannot fully um, benefit from the kingdom of God, from, from the, 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 the power and the blessings that come from of the kingdom of God or in, from our relationship with Christ or from our relationship with God. Because in order to fully walk in all the impact and the power of the kingdom, we must come in agreement with this very, very central truth that God is good. And I mean, I mean profoundly good all the time. And next week, as we continue in part 6b, we're going to begin by talking about God's discipline. Because this is, a, this is also an element we need to talk about. Because... The Bible does tell us that God disciplines those whom he loves, like a father will chastise his own child because he loves them. We're going to look at more things, but we're going to start with that. But this ends <clears throat> this week's broadcast, this first part of it, about God is good all the time. And the subtitle is so important, reconnecting, reconnecting with the Father's unfailing love reconnecting with the Father's unfailing love. This is so central to the kingdom of God and such an important element. We need to get to that place. And it, it's funny because I, I, I teach regularly. I teach every week. And I'm coming to a place in my life where I'm understanding this more and more, just how central it is and how much people are hurting. They are hurting. Perverse thinking hurts us. It causes all kinds of, of pains and, and terrible suffering. And God wants to free us from that. But Satan has been using, using what is going on in the earth realm and, and using our senses to show us, look at this and look at that and look at this, so that we focus on it. And come to a place where we doubt of God's goodness. That is Satan's tactic. And as a result, so many people, believers included, suffer tremendously. And this needs to be overcome, especially in the body of Christ, at this important juncture. At this important time in the calendar of the events that we're facing right now in the world. I don't think we can be lights. I don't think we can be salt until this is resolved fully in our hearts and minds to really understand that God is good and that he loves us with an everlasting love. And Dwight L. Moody, the quote I shared in the beginning of this broadcast, it was so good. Let me repeat it right here. If you can really make a man believe you love him, you have won him. And if I could only make people really believe that God loves them, what a rush we would see for the kingdom of God. Wow. He understood. Moody, Moody understood 
uh, so good, so well, what it means to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the full gospel of the kingdom of God. It is it is preached in love. It is preached also in making people understand the, the depth of God's goodness and the depth of his love. Uh, I hope this broadcast has blessed you. If it has, make sure you subscribe to this channel and put a like on this video. It's very much appreciated. And make sure you share it with as many people uh, as possible. People need to hear about God's goodness and God's love in this day and age. I will see you next week for the contingency, the, the, the second part of this very important uh, section about God is good all the time as we uh, close on this chapter. And uh, I hope this has blessed you. Be blessed and thrive on.